section 144 or 455 by forcing his disqualification only we the people can put that out there and force those motions to occur at the state level we have to go in and force the disqualifications to occur by forcing the judges to go in and admit to these payments immediately the first minute that we walk into that courtroom and when the judge doesn't we start raising the issue of fraud upon the court and the immediate disqualification of the judges and that everything they say is going to be void because when we do that we've raised the issue of due process right from the start what judge yaffe tried to do to me in his contempt order is he tried to say well mr fine didn't raise the issue that i was disqualified early in the game. Of course, Judge Yaffe was covering up the fact that he was mandatorily disqualified from the very beginning because of the fact that he took the illegal payment and under the Roscoe case, he was out. He didn't think that I knew that. And that's what knocked him out. And that's what knocks every judge out because they don't tell you right off the bat that they've taken the illegal payments. And that's how we knock these judges out. So that's the pressure that each and every one of us must do immediately. And if our lawyers don't do it, then we get in there and do it. We put that pressure on them. We put that pressure on them in every case. And as long as we keep putting that pressure on them, the system can't handle it. They can't handle it. When they see that coming against them in every case that they are in, and they see our knowledge of the law coming against them in every case that they are in, sooner or later, they break. They retire, they resign, they can't handle it. With this information, we become able to exercise our rights. And we fulfill Margaret Mead's saying, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever, ever has. But more than that, we still need a little bit more. We have legislation in place, but we need one more thing. These streets keep calling me. They don't want me to leave the light behind. Staring at stars, wishing I had time. Well, my kids need food and my girl needs me. And sometimes I dream that I'm finally free. 
So baby, don't play me, I ain't no toy I'm a prisoner here, but I still make noise And I'm a shout that I'm body with all my boys I'm a street kid now, but one day I'll be an island boy I'm just trying to make it, I'm an island boy Island boy, I'm an island boy Iraq actually is a perfect example of the way the whole system works. So we economic hitmen are the first line of defense. We go in and we try to corrupt governments and, and get them to accept these huge loans, which we then use as leverage to basically own them. If we fail, as I failed in, in Panama with Omar Torrijos and in Ecuador with Jaime Roldos, men who refuse to be corrupted, then the second line of defense is we send in the jackals. And the jackals either overthrow governments or they assassinate. And once that happens and a new government comes in, boy, it's going to toe the line because the new president knows what will happen if he doesn't. In the case of Iraq, uh, both of those things failed. Economic hitmen were not able to get through to Saddam Hussein. We tried very hard. We tried to get him to accept a deal very similar to what the House of Saud had accepted in Saudi Arabia, but he wouldn't accept it. And so the jackals went in to take him out. They couldn't do it. His security was very good. Um, after all, he had one time worked for the CIA. He'd been hired to assassinate a former president of, of, of Iraq and failed, but he knew the system. So in 91, we send in the troops and we take out the Iraqi military. So we assume at that point that Saddam Hussein is going to come around. We could have taken him out, of course, at that time, but we didn't want to. He's the kind of strong man we like. He controls his people. He could, we thought he could control the Kurds and keep the Iranians in their border and keep pumping oil for us. And then once we took out his military, now he's going to come around. So the economic hitmen go back in in the 90s without success. If they'd had success, he'd still be running the country. We'd be selling him all the fighter jets he wants and everything else he wants. But they couldn't. They, they, they didn't have success. The jackals couldn't take him out again. So we sent the military in once again, and this time we did the complete job and took him out and in the process created for ourselves some very, very lucrative construction uh, deals. We had to reconstruct a country that we essentially destroyed, which is a pretty good deal if you own construction companies, big ones. So, you know, Iraq shows the three stages. The economic hitmen failed there, the jackals failed there. And as a final measure, the military goes in. And in that way, we've really created an empire, but we've done it very, very subtly. It's clandestine. All the empires of the past were built on the military, and everybody knew they were building them. So the, the British knew they were building them, the French, the Germans, the, the Romans, the, the Greeks, and they were proud of it. And they always had some excuse, like spreading civilization, spreading some religion, something like that, but they, they knew they were doing it. We don't. The majority of the people in the United States have no idea that we're living off the benefits of a clandestine empire, that today there's more slavery in the world than ever before. And the question is, the demolition of the US dollar connected with some subject of three days, I know nothing about three days. No. What I do know is that Barack Obama is not there by chance. They put him there. They put a black man in the White House. And they put a black man in the White House to take blame, to be the guinea pig, to take the blame, because they know what's coming. I guess they're probably waiting for, the US dollar is already finished. 
It's in ICU. They're keeping it alive. They're waiting for a war, probably. And then they blame the war for it. And the US dollar will then collapse. Wall Street will witness its collapse. And then they will demonetize the US dollar, meaning it's no longer recognized as legal tender. And because so many countries hold stacks of US dollars, they can't buy oil in the world without US dollars. That's unfair, really. So all those US dollars that you're holding will suddenly collapse. China is going to lose most of all. Saudi Arabia is going to be losing a lot. And then they will replace the US dollar with another currency, which will have a fraction of the cost. So on every 90, every $1 that you had, you're probably going to get 5 cents. White America is going to suffer massively. Black America is not rich. And when white America suffers this massive blow, the United States has a very curious law. In the United States, you're allowed to buy guns. Oh yeah, you could buy as many guns as you want. So white America has lots of guns. So when the US dollar collapses, you're gonna have fireworks in the United States. Fireworks, riots, hitting, and they're preparing for it. But I don't know about the three days. When are you going to apologize for the million Iraqis that are dead because you lied? Street Journal reporting that Vice Media is closing in on a deal that would include George Soros's Soros Fund Management to acquire the media company out of bankruptcy. He arranged for all of us to have false papers. Everybody had a different arrangement. I was uh, adopted by an official of the Minister of Agriculture whose job was to take over Jewish properties. So I actually went with him and we took possession of these large estates. That was my identity. So it's a, it's a strange, very strange life for it. I was for The deal reportedly valued at around $400 million would wipe out nearly every current Vice Media stockholder. The journal reporting that other investors could appear to outbid Fortress Investment Group and Soros Fund Management, but that may be very unlikely. Last year in every major category, it's gotten so bad that people are sharing new ways to cook food or heat their homes, like this viral video teaching people how to save gas money by instead buying a can of tuna, using the oil in the tuna, light it on fire, and then cook inside or outside your home. Hey, it's cheaper than using natural gas. So this is what we get when the West blows up a cheap gas pipeline to Germany. People burning tuna or turning off their heat altogether. And it's been a very mild winter. The real problem will be winter of next year when those stockpiles run out and there's no cheap gas to refill them. And America, of course, likes to lecture the world about how to live after we blow up their pipeline. Just walk down the street in any major American city right now and you're going to see their policies in action. Just walk down Kensington Avenue in my hometown of Philadelphia and see the drug addicted stumbling over themselves, falling in the middle of the street, or the tent cities that are just blocks from the White House. Dramatic. I just had a conversation with someone who was in Moscow a couple of days ago, 
who tells me that the Russian general staff is preparing for a 30-month war against NATO and the United States. All of their munitions factories, equipment factories are running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So they are well stocked and they are prepared for the worst. I just had a conversation with someone who was in Moscow a couple of days ago. Reserve knows the dollar is finished. I mean, honest to God, um, if I could speak about maybe something I've heard at some point, maybe from something reputable, maybe, maybe not, you never know. I'm just going to throw something out there that I heard that the BRIC nations want off the dollar and they're going to do it August 1st of this year. So they have their own version of the SWIFT system, an international payment system that will run everything but the dollar. And joining that list is Saudi Arabia. This is big China's on that list. Russia's on that list. Brazil is on that list. You know, Thailand's on that list. There's a lot of countries that are tired of the dollar and they want off. China and Brazil have just agreed to ditch the U.S. dollar and do business in their own currencies. Likewise, Brazil and Argentina are working to create a brand new joint currency to sidestep the U.S. dollar as well. France just bought 65,000 tons of liquefied natural gas, and for the first time ever, they paid for that gas in Chinese yuan. Saudi Arabia has just agreed to allow the government of Kenya to pay for their oil, not in U.S. dollars, but rather in their own local currency. And as all this is happening, the BRICS nations are actively developing a new global currency that's backed by gold. These are just the latest nails in the coffin for the U.S. dollar. And if this continues, if more and more nations ditch the dollar, then eventually all those trillions of U.S. dollars that are currently spread out across the world will flow back into America and cause our rate of inflation to skyrocket even further. China China is not our enemy. I believe then, and I'm even more convinced now, that a rising China is an incredibly positive development for not only China, but the United States and the rest of the world. It is in our self-interest that China continue to prosper. China is a great nation, and we should hope for the continued expansion. We want to see China rise. A rising China can be a significant asset for the region and the world. China is going to eat our lunch Come on, man. They're not bad folks, folks. But guess what? They're not a they're, they're not, not their competition for us. China's not our problem. We can help them with some of their problems. China's not a problem. The idea that China's going to eat our lunch is bizarre. And so, the the end of the dollar dominance is already starting and. I think within even 10 years, the world will look very different. There are three basic reasons for that. Uh, first, uh, the dollar uh, is uh, backed by the U.S. economy, which is no longer so dominant as it used to be with the rise of China, with the rise of India, and so forth. The U.S. simply doesn't have the measure of backing to have the sole or the main uh, or the overwhelming, let me say, international currency. So that is factor number one. Second factor is the U.S. has mistakenly uh, militarized the dollar. It turned it into a geopolitical instrument by confiscating Russia's reserves, by confiscating Iran's reserves, by confiscating Venezuela's reserves, and so forth. Well, 
currency is to be used, not to be militarized. And the United States has undermined the role of the dollar by leading to distrust. If you are not in friendly terms geopolitically with the United States, it's very difficult to see why one should keep reserves uh, in dollar assets. They could be seized. And the third factor that will shift uh, to a different kind of international system is technology. We are moving to non-bank settlements or where the role of the so-called swift dollar-based banking system will surely diminish. Uh, we will have central bank digital currencies, for example, that will allow for direct settlements uh, between uh, different actors not going through the U.S. banking system. So we're going to see payments made, of, of course, in renminbi, in rubles, in rupees, uh, in uh, other currencies. This has already started. The, the end of... Joining us now, Texas Senator Ted Cruz and Kansas Senator Roger Marshall, both down on our southern border. Given what's happening tonight, Senator Cruz, I'll start with you. I mean, Mayorkas today, his nose was growing and growing and growing. Uh, this is all the fault of you and Senator Marshall for not embracing amnesty. <laughs> well, Laura, it's great to be with you. Roger and I are both down here in Brownsville, Texas. We're on the southern border, and there is a full-on invasion that is unfolding. We've seen for two and a half years the worst illegal immigration in history, six and a half million people crossing illegally. And I'll tell you, as we stand here tonight, hours away from Title 42 expiring, there are 22,000 illegal immigrants camped just south of the Rio Grande preparing to cross over. Every day, this community and the entire southern border is being swamped, it's being overwhelmed. Roger and I met with Border Patrol agents tonight. We met with the chief. We met with the head of the Border Patrol Union. They told us that here, just, just in Brownsville, that they are seeing roughly 100 Chinese nationals a day crossing illegally into this country, that they've seen in less than a month 35,000 Venezuelans cross illegally. And what is so infuriating is what you just said. Mayorkas and Biden, they're not trying to stop it. They're trying to speed it up. You know, we went with the Border Patrol agents who were processing these illegal aliens. They now have an app on their phone. They can process an alien in two minutes. And what Mayorkas wants to do is he wants to do it faster. He wants six and a half million to become 10 million, to become 12, 12 million, to become 20 million. And it is an absolute catastrophe for this country. This is an invasion, and Texas is paying the brunt of the price. I want to thank every single person in this room for leading the way in that fight. It's a critical fight. It's about democracy. It's about freedom. And I also want to thank my buddy Kamala, who I work for in the, up in the White House, for leading on this issue. I want to thank every... Democrats like to say they truly care about illegal immigrants as human beings, but once in a while they slip up and reveal their true reasons for wanting open borders. Take a look. Tourism, construction, agriculture. I mean, you're going to have vegetables rotting in the fields. You're going to have construction sites that will lie dormant uh, or certainly will struggle to get workers to be able to, uh, to, to, to help make sure that they can make progress. Those folk who are coming across are the ones who are 
helping to put food on our table. Without them, we're not able to eat. Immigrants pick the food we eat, clean our homes, and look after the most precious in our families. We have a shortage of workers in our country, and you see even in Florida, some of the farmers and the growers saying, why are you shipping these uh, immigrants uh, up north? We need them to pick the crops down here. All right, here now with Reaction 2024, Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is back with perhaps you've heard about, the Illuminati. We don't intend to spend a whole lot of time on the Illuminati, just enough to familiarize yourself if you've never heard of the organization. It was founded in 1776 in the south of Germany by a man named Adam Weishaupt. He formulated his plans in relation to the House of Rothschild in England. Germany, France, Italy. The Rothschild banking dynasty behind the governments of Europe hired Adam Weishaupt to formulate a plan for the world at that time to accomplish certain goals for those in power. That plan came to be known as the Illuminati plan. Now, you can find most of this material in any library, any encyclopedia, under the word Illuminati, which comes from, obviously, the word illumine, to be enlightened, to be in the light. But there's a very important book that I'd like to bring to your attention called Fire in the Minds of Men. It's on the origins of the revolutionary faith. Fire in the Minds of Men, written, written by James Billington, is a profoundly important book in understanding the revolutionary radical movements of the world today and how they got here, who finances them, and what they're really all about. I'd like to read to you a couple of paragraphs of importance, I think. In dealing with the occult origins of the organizational arrangements, how the occult organizations throughout the world, secret societies, are organized. In it, on page 87, he says, the story of the secret societies can never be fully reconstructed, and it has been badly neglected, even avoided, one suspects, because of the evidence that is available repeatedly leads us into territory equally uncongenial to modern historians in the East and the West. In what follows, I shall attempt to show that the modern revolutionary tradition as it came to be internationalized under Napoleon, the Restoration, grew out of occult Freemasonry. That the early organizational ideas originated more from Pythagorean mysticism than from practical experience and that the real innovators were not so much the political activists as literary intellectuals on whom German romantic thought in general and the Bavarian Illuminati in particular exerted great influence. Here he was talking about the organization of the Bavarian Illuminati. You can't discuss the Illuminati without understanding the Jesuit order of the Catholic Church. 
because Adam Weishaupt himself, the founder of the Illuminati, was in fact a Jesuit priest. He was not just an ordinary Jesuit priest, though. In Bavaria, he continued to support revolutionary radical thinking against the church and has given to the world what has come to be known as the revolutionary tradition. In May 1st, 1776 is when Adam Weishaupt founded this order, and that's why, of course, in Soviet Union and other communist countries, that May 1st is considered to be the important day to all communist uh, revolutionaries. Because Adam Weishaupt founded the Illuminati on May 1st, this you will find, as I said, in any encyclopedia. I'm going to be very honest with you, it's very unsettling to see how much the U.S. is not connecting the dots on our number one challenge, even though the NSS and the NDS, you know, calls it out. It's disturbing how ill-informed and naive uh, the average American is on uh, China. And I, I chalk this up, if I could summarize, into a China blindness, right? We face a knowledge crisis and a China blindness uh, problem. And the reasons are pretty clear. First of all, you know, China's pretty good about flying under the radar on things that are, are frankly very uh, uh, alerting. It uses time in a very adept way. It is very good at creeping its way to its objectives, right? This incrementalism that doesn't sort of alert you to something fast and red and blinking going across your sight line. It's the slow-moving other thing that doesn't get your attention. And the whole intent, if you're on the Chinese side, if you look back in their philosophy, is to not alert the existing hegemon to the rising hegemon's intentions and plans and capabilities, right? So what you don't want to do is to alert uh, the big guy on the block. What you want to do is make yourself look like you're not so much of a threat, and you want that hegemon to be very, very complacent about what's happening. Okay, it's the boiling the frog kind of syndrome. And Our next story is from Saudi Arabia. It is buying diesel from Russia and in very large quantities. And yes, you heard it right. Oil giant Saudi Arabia is buying diesel from Russia for domestic consumption. It makes no sense until it does. Let me explain this. Both Russia and Saudi Arabia are oil giants. Together, they dominate the powerful oil cartel called OPEC+. Plus. Russia is at war with the West. Saudi Arabia has its own issues with America. They partnered with each other and they're challenging Western oil sanctions. So the world's largest oil exporter is buying oil from Russia. This is a strategic game. Saudi Arabia has bought two and a half million barrels of Russian diesel. Not in a year, not in a month, in just 10 days. I'll repeat that. Saudi Arabia bought 2.5 million barrels of diesel from Russia in just the first 10 days of this month. That's the most diesel Saudi Arabia has ever bought from Russia. It's unprecedented. Saudi Arabia is the world's second largest producer of crude oil. Russia is the third. Then why does Riyadh need oil from Moscow? Let's first understand how it makes business sense. Russia is selling oil at discounted prices, which is why India and China are buying Russian oil despite Western pressure. Those same discounts apply to Saudi Arabia, meaning Russian oil is cheaper. So the Saudis are buying cheaper oil for domestic consumption. They're also refining some of the Russian diesel and exporting it to third countries at a higher price. 
Now, if they bought two and a half million barrels in 10 days, the profits must be significant and worth the trouble. We don't have the exact figures of how big the Russian discount is, but we understand that it makes business sense. And the timing of this is interesting. Europe has recently banned Russian diesel. The EU embargo on Russian diesel came into effect on the 5th of February. And around the same time, the Saudis started importing Russian diesel. Do you see the link? Is it possible that EU nations are getting Russian diesel from Saudi Arabia? We cannot confirm it, but reports to this effect are doing the rounds. And we wouldn't put it past the Europeans. As for Saudi Arabia, the extra diesel from Russia will not hurt. It can use the cheaper oil at home and free up some of its own oil for exports at higher prices. And by the way, Saudi Arabia is not the only country doing this. Russian diesel exports to countries like Turkey, Tunisia, Morocco and Brazil are also rising. And this shows how the European embargo has already failed. Russia has found new markets for its diesel. Now to the strategic dimension of the Russia-Saudi oil cooperation. Saudi Arabia is recalibrating its relationship with the US. Its security dependence on America is still significant, but politically they've drifted away. The Americans wanted to turn Riyadh into a pariah state. They gave lectures on human rights and then their president flew down to give fist bumps to MBS. It did not work. Riyadh is now charting its own course, even talking to Tehran without America's involvement. It controls global oil prices along with Russia. The oil cartel, OPEC Plus, decides on increasing or decreasing oil output and oil prices depend on supply. Washington has been worried about this deepening partnership. In October last year, it accused Saudi Arabia of aligning with Russia. Listen to what the White House said. Well, we believe by, uh, by the decision that OPEC Plus made last week, they certainly are uh, aligning themselves with Russia. And right now, this is not a time uh, to be aligning uh, with Russia, especially with this brutal, unprecedented uh, war that they have started uh, in, in Ukraine. Now is not the time to align with Russia. Saudi Arabia paid no heed. It is ignoring American diktats and making money off Russian oil. The net losers here are the United States and the European Union. I'm about to get on their ass this time. I'm about to get on their wrong. The police could kill a man on camera and get qualified immunity. And I'm tired of beefing with my own kind. I'm trying to find some unity. Tired of the foolery. The system abusing me. I got to ride with the tool of me. This shit ain't cool to me. But I'll be damned if I let you niggas make a fool of me. So I keep two on me. Uh, I done came a long way from the block with breakdowns. Finally opened my eyes when I had my daughter. Got tired of them shakedowns. The way I survived the game is still pain in my heart. I got a lot to say now. And I'ma show my whole ass on these motherfuckers. I ain't about to play around. Whatever happened to freedom of speech? Cause they telling niggas what to say now. When guilty ass don't wanna hear the truth, try to act defend the shit pitiful. If I was you, I'd be miserable. This war we fighting is spiritual. In other words, I'm doing God's work when I turn thoughts into artwork. My words fly like darts work, specifically designed to hit the target. They don't even wanna teach history the way it's meant to be because the shit is heartless. I might not change the world, but it's a chance I can spark the brain that's gonna get it started. Many die for me to walk like this, for me to talk like this, but the peace to Marcus. Got my eyes behind the scope, and I ain't taking number headshots. I got great aim, but my four five still came with a red dot. I got in this game, and I put this bitch in the headlock. Then Russia finally admitted to destroying 
NATO's deep underground command bunker in Kiev a few days after these attacks. They admitted to this. But what was in this command bunker? NATO was quiet about it. The United States has been absolutely silent about this Western bunker near the capital of Ukraine that was totally destroyed. Have you heard about it? Has CNN covered it? Has Fox News covered it? Has any major media outlet covered it? Has the BBC covered it? Where has this story been? Who was killed there? Has Ukraine talked about it? No, but that very day, you can piece the pieces, you can piece the evidence together and see interviews with Zelensky that afternoon where he looks like a like he was a beaten dog. Like he just literally had his stomach punched and and, and was slapped in the head because something big had just happened. And arguably he was supposed to have been there during that time when this when this uh, when this bunker busting bomb unfolded. So what exactly happened? Well, reports started to trickle out to sort from sources that I trust and independent media sources that one of these six Kinzhal missiles struck a secret bunker in western Ukraine near the capital. It was devastating. And then again, I said, you know, Zelensky shows up on TV, looks like a like a beaten down dog because he just lost hundreds of his top leadership members, hundreds of them. Russia struck a bunker that was 400 feet below ground, 400 feet below ground, and destroyed it. According to reports, 300 people among them, dozens of uh, top NATO officials, dozens of NATO officials, not from Ukraine, from NATO, were also there and killed at the time. But oddly, this story has been redacted by the mainstream media. No mention of it. Totally ignored. Again, I haven't heard anything about it. I haven't seen it printed. I scoured newspapers all day today try to find nothing. Nothing. Who was killed there? What NATO members were killed? No, no mention of it. And they were killed by, by these Kinzhal missiles after that terrorist attack was launched in Bryansk. So why are we not getting the answers on this? On the eve of the first round, you told your supporters that the U.S. president had given instructions to, quote, topple you. Do you have any evidence to suggest that the U.S. president is meddling in these Turkish elections, that he gave instructions to topple you? Mr. Biden's statement to this effect before he was elected was recorded on TV, unfortunately. And we listened to his words on TV and we were upset. I spoke to him about it later at an international summit. And I told him that I was deeply upset by his remarks and that I didn't expect this from him. You called him out for calling you an autocrat in his election campaign before the US elections. That is not the same as suggesting that he is meddling in these elections and wants to topple you. Do, do you genuinely believe, as you suggested last Saturday, that Joe Biden wants to topple you? <laughs> How could someone who is going into a runoff election instead of completing the election in the first round be a dictator? That is the reality. We have an alliance with 322 MPs in parliament and the leader of this alliance is going to go for the runoffs in the first position. What kind of a dictator is that? 
Ve buyurun şimdi biz ikinci tura gireceğiz. So if re-elected, are you saying that you will work with the Biden administration? You can work with the Biden administration. Onda hiç şüphe yok. Without a doubt, I will work with Mr. Biden. And if Biden goes, then I will work with whoever replaces him as well. The US would like Turkey to take a stronger stance against Russia, particularly with regard enforcing sanctions. In April of this year, the US imposed sanctions on at least four Turkey-based entities. It said were violating US export controls and helping Russia's war effort. President Erdogan, is Turkey helping Russia evade sanctions? And will you abide by US sanctions on Russia? We have no problems with our relationship with Russia at the moment. And we are not at a point where we would impose sanctions on Russia like the West have done. We are not bound by the West's sanctions. As Turkey, we are a strong state and we have positive relations with Russia. In terms of our foreign trade volume, we've reached an ideal level with Russia. When you look at our tourism numbers, Russia is number one. Unfortunately, because of the latest statements by the main opposition party, many tourists are going to other destinations. I won't be a leader that makes the mistake of missing the tourists from Russia or Ukraine. Let's talk about the S-400s and the controversy that that has created, uh, the purchase of those from, from Russia, the problems that that has created for your relationship with Washington. It was the purchase of those S-400 systems that got Turkey expelled from the F-35 fighter jet program. Do you still have any hope that you'll be able to acquire F-35s in the future or have you got to the point where you say we don't need them we will have our own domestic defense sector going forward we don't need to buy from others saying trump during the trump presidency the u.s had a wrong approach regarding the s-400s why if we are a free democratic country taking part in a liberal global market if I cannot purchase the defense system from the U.S., then it's the U.S. that pushes us to buy a different system from a different country. We couldn't purchase those systems from the United States. That's why I bought the equivalent from Russia. And when the F-35s were not delivered to us, we were very upset because we are NATO allies. Turkey is one of the most significant members of NATO. That's when we started looking at the alternatives. When we saw the attitude of the Americans about the F-35s, we told them to at least provide us F-16s and the necessary parts so we continue our relations in a determined manner. There are some positive developments in that regard. I hope that these positive developments will continue. Are you ready to support Sweden's NATO membership? As long as Sweden continues to allow the offshoots of terror groups in Turkey to roam free in Sweden, in the streets of Stockholm, we cannot look favorably on Sweden's membership in NATO. President Erdogan, are you saying that you are not yet prepared to agree to Sweden's accession to NATO? We're not ready for Sweden. We're not ready for Sweden right now. First, they need to solve this issue because a NATO country should have a strong stance when it comes to fighting terrorism, and they should not allow any terror groups to run freely in their streets against a NATO country, because this is what makes NATO special. 
Uh, remember how Annabelle Goldie, the British Minister of Defense, admitted that they were being they, they were sending these depleted uranium shells to Ukraine for use against Russia uh, in those tanks that they were sending to Ukraine. She was proud to tell us this. She said this publicly, so this is not something that uh, the internet is creating a, as a conspiracy theory. It came right out of the British government's mouth. Then a few days later, it was caught on camera, the caught on camera edition. British soldiers in a tank training video captured this. So these are the still images from this video. These are the depleted uranium shells. Teaching Ukrainian tank rookies how to use these depleted uranium shells. Those depleted uranium shells were then on the table during this little propaganda film here. See if you could spot them here on the table. Watch. And one track will be slightly looser. One track will be one track. Oh, there they are. So this is the British teaching them how to, how they're going to load these tanks and how they're going to use them. The British are so nice, right? I mean, they're British military is so great. It's amazing, like no, Ukra no Ukrainians are like, hey, um, so in East this won't backfire on us, right? Yeah, how like in Eastern Ukraine, like all of that really fertile soil that's sort of considered some of the best soil in the world, like that's our land. We're going to use this stuff. Mm, We're going to use this flag. on land we want back. Right. Okay. on our people that we pretend we haven't been hitting and killing for uh, in a genocide for the last nine years. But so it all makes sense. I makes guess. total sense. Um, then Putin responded, of course, to all of this, telling us that he knew what the British were up to. And he told us exactly what he planned to do. He wasn't bluffing. Watch. Не только о поставках танков на Украину, но и снарядов с объединенным ураном. Похоже, что Запад действительно решил воевать с Россией до последнего украинца уже не на словах, а на деле. Но хотел бы в этой связи отметить, что если все это будет происходить, то соответствующим образом Россия вынуждена будет реагировать, имея в виду, что yeah, so he was going to take action on those and blow them up. He was going to blow them up. He wasn't bluffing about that. And he also reiterated those remarks in another, uh, in another speech. But what did Russia do overnight to those depleted uranium stockpiles in a giant warehouse with all of these other NATO munitions? This is what Russia just did. Watch. Yeah. That's the massive, massive explosion of depleted uranium shells, among other weapons that NATO keeps sending. These, you know, it's amazing, uh, you know, that these things wind up in these massive warehouses. Russia knows exactly where they are and it launches Iskander missiles and destroys all of them. What is the purpose of, of billions of dollars being sent for this stuff? Here's another one. Here's another warehouse, another ammunition depot that was also blown up this morning. Yep, there it is. And hit multiple targets, no, no civilian areas. This was specifically ammunition depots, according to the reports. Um, and they're saying, you know, this is the thing. NATO created this mess. More NATO ammunition depots were, these are the only two that we're showing you, but there was plenty more. Tens of millions of dollars of ammunition hit by Russian Iskander missiles. Money well spent. I mean. Money well spent. So now the question is, well, what does this do you know, is this like East Palestine now? Like clouds of radioactive chemicals in the air? 
uh, groundwater, soil, what's going to happen here? Now, according to Russia this afternoon, according to the, um, this is a Russian member of parliament, a nuclear safety expert from Russia. His name is Maxim Shingarkin. He says, this pushing now by the West of depleted uranium is in the atmosphere and it's killed. He's like, no, that's a total lie. Don't fall for that lie. These are his words. Here's him explaining it. Let's see if you agree. Listen. Украинские СМИ распространяют информацию о радиационном загрязнении территории Хмельницкой области якобы по вине Российской Федерации. Сразу можно сказать, что это откровенная ложь. Да, действительно, на территории Хмельницкой области находились склады с боеприпасами, в том числе для английских танков, в том числе с боеприпасами, которые в своем составе имеют уран. По сути дела, это такие бронебойные урановые сердечники, Задача которых пробивать броню. Но могли ли они испариться от взрывов химических боеприпасов и стать источником радиационного загрязнения? Здесь нужно четко понимать. Дело в том, что такой сердечник потому и делается из урана, что его задача на высокой скорости ударить в броню и, приходя во взаимодействие с толстой стальной броней, расплавляясь, проникать внутрь за счет высокой ударной энергии. И только в этом случае достигается температура плавления, и эта температура 1400 кельвинов. Но сколько бы ни взрывали рядом с этими урановыми сердечниками, обычные химические боеприпасы, а таратин, гексоген, это все первая сотня градусов в точке взрыва, Нельзя добиться ни фактически разрушения этих боеприпасов, ну тем более никакого испарения, которое к тому же должно стать масштабным радиационным загрязнением. Еще раз поясню. Масштабное радиационное загрязнение возникнет, если Киевская хунта начнет применять эти боеприпасы на территории России и Украины в ходе боестолкновения. Right, but what that guy was saying was it would only be dangerous under these conditions, and that's something that we can't verify probably plenty of people in our chat could because they're brilliant but right so what we're saying is is there then a neutral body that could do that well we don't know because the neutral body that would do this has shown themselves utterly uninterested in any kind of nuclear fallout in the eastern region of ukraine since the war began even though russia has repeatedly invited them a radical plan to crack down on social media abuse is being considered by the federal government. For more, Nine's Oliver Haig joins us live in Adelaide. Ollie, how will it work? Lila, good morning. Essentially, it will work the same as a passport. Australians forced to submit 100 points of identification, like their driver's licence or passport, when using social media accounts like Facebook and Twitter. Now, police would have access to those social media accounts, and it's all part of a crackdown on online abuse. Now, users could be liable for defamation suits or even criminal prosecution, and it's all part of a plan hoping to deter people from engaging in bad behaviour. Now, the recommendation were handed down by a federal parliamentary inquiry. They're reforms that are being considered by the Morrison government, with the chairman saying there is merit to remove, to remove uh, the veil of being anonymous. Layla? Best way to end Putin's aggression is for Ukraine to win. And that means we have to give them more help. 
So BlackRock executives are meeting with Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. Uh, they've been there. They spent a nice weekend in Kiev. Um, let them know, all the BlackRock executives, they wanted them to know now who owns Ukraine from top to bottom. It's BlackRock. So BlackRock is the largest asset manager in the world. It has massive ownership in, by the way, seven top Russian companies, as well as major infrastructure across Russia. So it owns a lot of Russia as well. And it reminds me, I mean, this is, they, may, they profit off of war either way, right? This is how it works with BlackRock. Um, and now they own 30% of Ukraine, which is a low number, relatively speaking. But so they really want to own the whole enchilada is what they're going for. Which is interesting because it used to be during war that it was weapons makers that profited off of both sides. We don't see that anymore because Russia and China make their own. And so it's not just one. But And who is the new uh, kingmakers of war is money. Right. This is the international monetary. Right. We'll lend you money. But then you're indebted to us for decades to come. Right. The UK only recently paid off its debt to the United States from World War II. Think about that. Just a few years ago, the UK finally paid off its World War II debt to the United States, which is unbelievable. Um, so why are executives from BlackRock meeting with Zelensky in Ukraine this weekend? What could they possibly have to gain? Here's the moment where they're all shaking hands. And I want you to notice all of the fancy camera work that they've got set up, like multiple cameras on tracks, like so it's nice and smooth, it's well lit. Like this is a whole big production for their for all their big money guys in BlackRock, watch. This is President. Ah, nice to meet you. Great honor and pleasure to be here. You're very welcome. Very good to be Thank here. You. Yeah. Hello, Charles. How are you? Nice very good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you for having us. It's a privilege. Yeah. It's a privilege. It's a privilege. Put on my back the best black sweater for you. This was the big meeting this weekend, right? Back in, and they're there, of course. How many billions are we going to then? We're, we'll, we'll put this money here, but we're going to buy up all of this land. So and we will own everything. You'll recall this is exactly what Zelensky solicited mm -hmm. when he spoke to Congress just a few months ago. And he said, hey, we're open for business. We like these companies such as he specifically named BlackRock and offered them to come and invest in whatever Ukraine would be when it was rebuilt as a glorious victor. So we shouldn't be surprised he asked for this, you know, and so, right. of course, this is, oh, OK, that's why we knew this. And Zelensky even went on camera to gloat about all of the money that Ukraine was getting from BlackRock and JP Morgan. It is obvious that American business can become the locomotive that will once again push forward global economic growth. We have already managed to attract attention and have cooperation with such giants of the international financial and investment world as BlackRock, JP Morgan, and Golden Sachs, such American brands as Starlink or Westinghouse have already become part of our Ukrainian way. Your brilliant defense systems such as HIMARS or Bradley's are already uniting our history of freedom with your enterprises. We are waiting for patriots. We are looking closely at Abrams. Thousands of such examples are possible. And everyone can become a big business by working with Ukraine. 
Come on down to Ukraine. We've got plenty of things for you to buy. That's right. It was that speech. It wasn't in Congress. Yeah. And so we really support freedom, right? We really support freedom. We really, and this is how you can support democracy. Like if you want to invest, invest in Ukraine because they support democracy. Because Zelensky runs everything, he can offer them like whatever incentives they want. Like that, that's whatever they want is on the table. You want tax incentives, you want to pay no interest, you want all this stuff. Like he can set all that. So it's like a gold mine for them over there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so infrastructure from sewer to electricity to all major infrastructure, everything, the land. We're going to set up factories. We will own everything. That's exactly. So they only they own 30 percent of the country already. How much more do they want? Well, they want 70, 80 percent. They certainly don't want Vanguard snuffing in there. So it's been all BlackRock, right? And J.P. Morgan Chase, basically. Last December, it was revealed that BlackRock CEO Larry Fink had already been having meetings with Zelensky. We learned about this. And of course, the Zoom phone calls. There's Larry Fink with zooming in, you know, to to the conference room with Zelensky, ironing things out. How can we make sure that all the infrastructure, the money we're going to pour into is is growing? Um, and that's exactly what's happening. And so all of the taxpayers, you guys are paying for all of the weapons. You guys are paying for all of the bullets. You guys are paying for all of this. You guys are paying for higher because of higher inflation. All of it because of Ukraine. And then who profits? It's BlackRock. Oh, sure, the IMF will give you all of these loans, but then you'll be indebted to us for decades to come. We will own you. It's exactly what the IMF does to Africa, and it will do to Ukraine. You will be under the thumb of the EU, the United States, and the International Monetary Fund.
Nation. Yeah, yeah.